This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we mentioned, over the weekend, uh, there's always stuff going on in campaigning here. The official writ for the campaign hasn't even been dropped yet. That doesn't happen for another week or so. But uh, the campaigning has been hot and heavy for the last little while. And over the weekend, uh, PC leader Doug Ford appointed, there's the key word there, appointed 11 candidates in different ridings across the province for the upcoming election. Uh, one of which, by the way, is the son of uh, former Premier Mike Harris. Interesting choice. But it's, uh, it's received a lot of criticism, and a lot of that criticism is not coming from the opposition MPs, well, although some of it is, but it's coming from progressive conservative members, party members, who are saying, whoa, wait a second. One of those is Brad Clark. Uh, Brad, of course, is a former city councilor here in the city of Hamilton, but uh, before that, he is the uh, former MPP in the uh, Progressive Conservative Caucus and a former cabinet member in the uh, PC Caucus. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you doing this morning, Brad? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Yeah, your reaction when you heard of uh, Mr. Ford's announcement? Um, I was shocked, stunned, uh, given his recent iterations that that um, he wants to return um, the Progressive Conservative Party back to the grassroots and take it away from the elites. And so he had been very critical of Patrick Brown for uh, appointing any candidates, and then... Um, and Mr. Ford does this. It's quite surprising, actually. And, and let's get into the, the nuts and bolts here, because I know that there's some accusations, hey, he can do whatever he wants. And, and uh, technically, uh, party leaders can appoint candidates. But as somebody who's been in the political arena for a number of years right now, uh, give us your read on, on just how that's being viewed by people in, for instance, riding associations. Um, riding associations are, are really frustrated. Uh, there was a number of candidates who were vying for um, the the PC nomination in different ridings for well over a year, selling memberships and 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 you know the process that you go out and sell members and try to get your members to come out to the nomination meeting and then if you're fortunate you secure the nomination. Uh, in my opinion, there is ample time, um, given that the the nomination meetings are usually run by. Um, a volunteer from the party coming out and the local writing association does all the rest of the work. There's no reason why all of these nominations uh, were thrown out uh, just for appointments. It, it, it's quite troubling. There's another political reality here, Brad. Uh, I mean, anybody who reads the newspapers, listens to the radio, uh, and hears anything about public opinion polls over the last uh, four to five weeks understands that uh, the PCs seem to have a significant lead, uh, if not insurmountable lead, here in the province of Ontario. So you can't tell me that they couldn't find candidates. Well, no, there's been a wealth of people interested in running, Bill. You know that as well as I yeah. do. Um, especially when the polling numbers are so high. Uh, and, and they had some really good candidates uh, who were interested in, in, in seeking the nomination. It just... It, I understand the need... To appoint nominees, or um, when the writ has been dropped and you're now in the middle of the election and you got to have a full deck, I'd get that. But we're weeks away from that yet, and there's still time to organize nomination meetings. They don't take that much time to organize, and and it was just, I guess, the fact, Bill, honestly, that he said so abruptly that he wouldn't do this type of thing, and then he did it, that it's what's bothering the progressive conservatives. Well, there's a credibility issue here. And, and I mean, I, I you know, let's go down that road, uh, because uh, I can say a lot of the dissenting voices I'm hearing are people like you that were in the party, and uh, I don't know what your status is now, but, I mean, you were a party member in good standing and a cabinet member, for heaven's sakes. 
in in the government. And uh, when a guy says something and then does the polar opposite, it begs the question: Well, what else are you going to backtrack on? Well, it's it's frustrating, especially since. The Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario has long held out that it's a very democratic process. You know, when we elect a leader, it's one one vote per member. Um, it, it's not run like a normal political convention where you bring in delegates. So they pride themselves on, on having their grassroots of the party so intimately involved in the process, and then to have that switch up uh, so dramatically... And I have to stress, in writings where there was actually people seeking out the nomination, so this was not somewhere where they didn't have any interest. This was in writings where there was lots of interest. In one case, the guy was selling memberships for a year and a half, and all of a sudden he's out and an appointee is in. That really will hurt the riding results in that area because people will be very upset about it. Well, there's a couple of things that can go on, and you mentioned this, just touched on it in your earlier comments, but I'd just reiterate for the sake of listeners who may not understand the process, that's how nomination meetings essentially are run. Uh, if if Joe Blow wants to be the candidate for this party, he has to go out and start knocking on doors and selling memberships for 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever they are. Uh, and that it's a fundraiser. I mean, that's really what nomination meetings are. It's a fundraiser for the party, right? Absolutely. They, they sell the memberships for $10 a pop, and then they hold the nomination meeting and they invite all of those people who bought memberships to come out and vote for their candidate, uh, and that's how the democratic process is supposed to work. So, you know, it's, it's really the candidate that weighs the most money for the political party. That's part A and part B, the one who obviously gets most of it, those people that bought memberships to show up for the nomination meeting and sit through however many ballots it is. Uh, but your point's well taken, Brad, about, uh, well, this this is not a timing problem here, because there's lots of time between now and June 7th. As a matter of fact, we're having a, a nomination meeting here in the Hamilton area later this week, uh, one that got botched initially that uh, M- Mr. Brown took a lot of heat for. It uh, got canceled because of the weather, so now they're going to do it. So I guess if it's okay for Ancaster Dundas, but not okay for these other writings? I was in a nomination meeting in uh, Stony Creek uh, last week. There you go. And there were three candidates vying, and and the process went on, and it was it went very well actually. There was no hiccups, so the timing. <laughs> I can't accept the argument that they're running out of time, so they have to do these appointments. Why then the appointments? I, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate on this point, but it's not one or two; it's eleven. That that's uh, pretty sweeping. Um. I can only assume, and I I am speculating, that Mr. Ford is wanting his best candidates out there. Uh, Naturally, uh, the ire of nepotism comes up, and and people are concerned that powerful uh, candidates with connections are getting the nominations as opposed to a grassroots person who has fought hard and possibly earned the nomination. But is, is that really just a shallow argument? I mean, you know, if you're running as a PC candidate in Ontario now, heading for the June 7th election, I, I, we have to assume that you buy into the, into the well, such as the platform is, but you buy into Doug Ford. I mean, he's the leader of the party. If you don't like him as the leader, chances are you're not going to seek the nomination. Well, one would hope so, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just, it's frustrating, uh to see so many good people who were out there selling memberships and, and taking the party at its face value and, and um, 
doing everything they can to earn the opportunity to represent that riding as the candidate for the PC Party of Ontario and to have that upended in 11 different ridings, uh, it is frustrating. It's exasperating. It's, it's not what the party generally stands for. Um, and I think he's getting some bad advice from people around him. Well, which begs the question, I've seen a couple of po- comments on social media about this, and I'd love to get your comment on this. Some are suggesting that uh, those insiders, quote-unquote, and, and we've heard other references to the people within the party hierarchy, are actually calling the shots here and not Doug Ford. I don't know that for sure. Uh, the leader has the authority to appoint, uh, but it is uh, disturbing to have 11 appointees when it's not necessary at this particular time. What does this do? Talk to us again about riding associations, which are the heart and soul of this. And strong riding associations, invariably, you lead to usually very successful candidacies because you get this groundswell of support from people in the community. These are your neighbors, the people you work with, the people that you go and see a hockey arena on Saturday mornings, whatever the case might be. Uh, and they're dedicated to whichever political party it might be. And, and they feel as if they're making a difference because they're the ones that are knocking on doors for the alleged candidate or the hopeful candidate, uh, and they're the ones that think, hey, this is actually going to work, um, and then have the, the rug pulled out from under you like this. It's got to be disconcerting for them. It is. Um, if you, let's look at it from this standpoint. Assume there's three or four candidates vying for the nomination in any particular riding. They could end up selling upwards of 2,000, 3,000 memberships. We've seen that happen in the Hamilton area. Now you decide at the last minute to upend that nomination process and appoint someone uh, to that position. So you now have these three or four people who were uh, vying for it with their thousands of members sold, angry and upset and, and feel betrayed by the party. And as a result, you may have three or 4,000 people who may not vote for the party. So it can really affect the outcome in a riding when a riding is not united. That's an interesting phenomenon that's, phenomena rather, that's developed over the last number of years, isn't it, Brad? Disenchanted voters uh, usually don't gravitate to another political party. They just say, to heck with it, I'll stay home this year. That, that is the real threat, is that they simply stay home. I'm done. This uh, has upset me to the point where they don't want to go out and vote, and, and that really is a vote for uh, Kathleen Wynne. And so the party normally wants to limit that from happening. So you try to have a really cordial, respectful nomination process, get it done, make sure everyone uh, buys into the final outcome and move on. Uh, But in this case, you now have candidates across the province who have been upended, and I have no doubt that their family and friends are upset, and they'll likely just stay home. Uh, One of them is a name that we are familiar with, uh, and it's rather interesting... (laughs) Uh, it's up in the, the KW area, of course. Uh, the the MPP up there for the last few elections has been a guy named Mike Harris, who has no relation to the Mike Harris who was the premier. He left under, uh, well, some rather questionable circumstances. He said he had a, phys- a mental a physical condition, rather, and then we found out that there were some uh, anomalies that the party were concerned about. But his replacement, who was appointed, is another Mike Harris. Uh, but this one you do know. I mean, this is the son of uh, of the former premier. Yes, Michael D. Harris is the MPP in the, the KW area who um, ended up the party received allegations of some sexual improprieties. I'm not sure about the details, but they were alleged. They removed him from caucus, and they removed him from the opportunity to run um, in the next election. Uh, 
I understood that there were other people who were interested in running. As a matter of fact, at one point, Michael D. Harris's wife uh, said she was going to run in, in his stead. And then it was a big surprise for many people down this way that Mike Harris, the former premier, his son has been appointed as the candidate in that area. Well, and, and again, uh, this is not necessarily a parachute because apparently Mr. Harris, the new candidate, lives down there He's uh, with his family and has been there for quite some time and is well-known in the community. So, uh, it's, it's And not... technically it makes sense, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Have a Michael D. Harris replaced by a Mike Harris. It's the same name. People may not even notice. Yeah, you don't have to change the ballot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you still have that incumbency factor without having the actual incumbent. Maybe maybe the most troubling aspect of this whole thing, Brad, is all of a sudden guys like you and I that have been in the biz for a little while, we're watching the sons of the people that we're in the business with taking over now. <laughs> yes, we are getting old, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sure seems that way. Uh, is is this a one day story, or is there, they're going to? I, I mean, obviously the opposition party is going to try to make a big deal of it because that's what they do. But but is, is the discontent that you talked about here within the party, is, is that going to go, just go away, or is it something that's going to fester? I, I suspect it's going to go away on the provincial scene, but it will likely fester in the local ridings where there were these issues. It'll be interesting to see the voter turnout uh, come June 7th when uh, you know, we actually see just whether or not these people continue to be ticked off about this. And, and the appointed candidate, it's their role, their job now to try to unite the riding association, so to reach out to those um, disenchanted uh, candidates, uh, former candidates, and to reach out to their supporters. Uh, if they do it well, um, they may ride through this without any, any hitch. But if they ignore it completely, uh, I think they're going to have uh, some surprises on Election Day. Brad Clark, uh, consultant uh, here in the Hamilton area now, and of course former uh, cabinet member for the uh, Progressive Conservatives uh, just a while back, as it turns out. Brad, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We've had a lot of discussion uh, right across this country over the last couple of weeks, I guess, about the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project. And uh, the political fallout that's uh, resulted in that between the the provinces of British Columbia and Alberta, certainly, and now the federal government, who's trying to broker some sort of a deal here to get this thing done. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, the Fed's already okayed this, and Alberta wants this desperately, but uh, the B.C. government, uh, the NDP government in B.C., says they won't sign the papers to get this thing going. And uh, there's a trade war that's resulted. It's gotten really ugly. Well, there is another pipeline project that uh, is, uh, well supposed to be on its way. It was actually okay at the same time back in 2016. Uh, but it could be uh, in jeopardy because of some of the legalese that's going down. Joining us to talk about both of them, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? I'm great, thank you, Bill. Uh, this has devolved from a, a debate about whether or not this can go in and signing all the papers to, I think, a, a philosophical debate about pipelines in general. Yeah, there's some of that for sure, Bill. So let's just distinguish between the two. The the Trans Mountain Pipeline debate that's going on is about twinning an existing pipeline from near Edmonton down to uh, Vancouver and then from there on into the United States. There's already an existing pipeline there, and the idea is it's operating at full capacity. Let's twin it. Now, the other pipeline that was approved on the exact same day is Enbridge's Line 3. That's an existing pipeline that is getting old. It was built in the early 1960s, therefore it's almost 60 years old. 
Uh, Enbridge has had some problems in maintaining this pipeline. Yes, there's been some leaks because it's getting old. They have voluntarily pulled back on the capacity. They're not operating the pipeline at the same volume they would like. And, in fact, what they announced and what the government approved was a, a redo. They're going to rebuild this pipeline in, in making it brand new. They're also going to expand the capacity to bring more oil. Now, this pipeline starts near Edmonton, a place called Hardesty, Alberta, runs down through Saskatchewan. I think it even goes through a corner of Manitoba and then enters Minnesota. There's kissing cousins out west. In other words, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba are fine with it. And work has begun on line three. The problem is, and I don't mean to necessarily say the problem, but the holdup is Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota has not given the approvals for this at this point. Uh, and today there's supposed to be a report coming from a judge who's independently reviewing this. Her report goes to their, in essence, pipeline review people. They're not bound by the judge's report, but clearly if the judge were to give a very negative view of this, it could spell a lot of problems for Line 3 going forward. Uh, again, not a new pipeline, replacing an existing pipeline. Yes, in replacing it, they're going to make it have a bigger capacity. That probably makes some sense. Um, and running on the exact same land, so no, no new virgin land going out. But there is still an attempt, at least in Minnesota, to stop all of this. All right, but why then, if, if both of these are, are really you know going along the same lines, it's is this not akin to saying, yeah, you know what, we built a highway there a few years ago, the highway's falling apart, we're just going to resurface it now and fix it up. Uh, you don't have to go through all the approvals again, do you? Well, um, <laughs> Bill, why I'm laughing is that if you built the highway in 1960 when the environmental standards were X and now they're 5X, uh, you don't get grandfathered. So you, you have to go back through some of this to show. And increasingly what, what governments are asking of the pipeline is not how much environmental damage you're going to cause as you build the pipeline. And in this situation, since the pipeline's running over the same area, that's easy. I'm not causing any more than is already there. But the concern more is down the road. What, how, do you, how do you handle this over the life of the pipeline, i.e. the next 40, 50 years? What steps do you take? What is your mitigation in case there happens to be a leak? And so they're, they're put back through a regulatory process. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I think it, it makes sense that as we've learned more about the environment in 50 years, we need to ask the right questions. But this is, again, a you know, wonderful debate. Minnesota uh, at this moment has a democratic government. Uh, uh, they're asking good environmental questions. I suppose had there been a Republican government in Minnesota, this might very well have been a rubber stamp. Um, we think, we don't know for sure because the judge is obviously independent, we think the judge is going to say replacing the pipeline makes sense, subject to a series of constraints, whatever those happen to be. Enbridge at this point says, until we hear what those constraints are, we're not sure we're going to be able to go on with this proposal. So from, from a Justin Trudeau standpoint, from a federal government standpoint, to have approved two pipelines and see them both in some, uh, some problems, one domestically, one internationally, it, it again begs the whole question about, well, how easy is it to invest in the energy sector in Canada? Good question. I, and I get your point. I mean, it's well taken. I mean, I mean, 50, 60 years ago when they built these things, it was just, you know, we're going to build the darn thing from point A to point B and knock down the trees and, and everything else and uh, to hell with ecosystems. And I mean, I know we are smarter now than, and we do things differently now. We build roads differently. We build pipelines differently right now. But I'm not hearing a whole lot from Enbridge or in the case of Kinder Morgan with the Trans Mountain uh, about any of those. They're saying, yeah, we'll do all that stuff. Just let us build it. Right. So, um, 
in the case of Enbridge, Enbridge was also the people behind what was known as the Energy East pipeline. That was yeah, a, how'd that work out? Yes, well, that was a third pipeline that was approved at almost the exact same time as these other two, the Line Three and the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain pipeline. Uh, in that situation, Enbridge eventually walked away from the deal. They said, you, you know, you used to ask us to do A, B, and C. We're happy to do A, B, and C. But now you've thrown in a whole new series of criteria. And, and you know, we're just not feeling like we can make any money at this. We're not feeling like we're doing the right thing here. Uh, you know, we can, we can make all this happen the way we'd like to. So they walked away from it. Now, again, Bill, your audience, I'm sure, is split on a couple sides here. If you're an environmentalist, you, you cheer, yay, another pipeline down, bit the dust, yay, 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 yay. Uh, more of that oil stays in the ground, less of it gets piped. And, and I hear what they're thinking. My problem with that argument is that oil does not stay in the ground. Our consumption of oil remains strong. We have not yet moved to electric cars and self-driving cars. We have not moved there yet. We are slowly, slowly moving there, but we're still going to be an oil-based economy for another couple of decades. So if you don't build the pipelines, how does the oil get to the refineries? It gets there by train car loads. The average person just does not understand the tremendous volume of train cars this country sees transporting oil from uh, west to east, or in some cases west to further west, uh, to the B.C. coast. And it's, it's astronomical, Bill. Hundreds of thousands of train cars every day going over these routes. And I worry about that environmental. So even though, yes, you've stopped a pipeline and you've saved one kind of environmental concern, another one that you can't regulate, which is train cars, are going up more and more and more and more. We remember what happened uh, at Lac Macantique in, in uh, Quebec. It was the train derailed and burned half the town to, to the ground. This is what worries me. So it may be a Pyrrhic victory. You might win one battle, but you might actually be losing the war. Well, and you got to wonder if there's a certain hypocrisy in some of the opposition, and and not that some of it's not legitimate, because I understand that it is, and and we we can talk about those points. But I mean, the Energy East pipeline was that was a, a just a dog's breakfast right from day one. I mean, one of the the main opponents of that was uh, Montreal Mayor Denny Cordero. He was then the mayor anyway, and and I mean that th that was the essence of hypocrisy. I mean, he said I I have serious environmental concerns about that. Now, excuse me, I have to go turn on the raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River. So and and the same thing's happening in Vancouver right now. Yes, I, I hear you exactly. Um, and and see, sometimes this is also tied to when you're about to go out for an election. So uh, Energy East would have been constructed right now. Quebec is going to have its provincial election just a little later this year. There's a, a lot of concerns from um, the premier uh, whether he can get reelected. You might remember it's a liberal premier there, just like there's a liberal premier in Ontario. Both of them are facing a bit of an uphill battle. This is just not the time to rub the electorate in the wrong way. So timing on these things can be a big part. And, and I know, heaven forbid I say this out loud, Bill, but politics still reigns large in these environmental approvals. Do you think? Yeah, I'm sorry to say. But, and the problem we've got here, with the, especially with the, the Enbridge problem here, the, the Line 3, is that it seems to be uh, the U.S. Uh, political uh, spectrum that's holding this thing up right now, which is not to say it's not without some controversy, because I know that you mentioned it does cut through a little bit of Manitoba, and I know that some of the indigenous groups there are concerned about that. Uh, and I don't know whether those issues have been addressed or not. So th there's, there's no easy way to get this stuff done. Well, that's correct. You know, uh, once upon a time, you would get one approval from one government and away you would go. Now you have to have consultation in all the different communities at a municipal level, at a state or provincial level, at a federal level. You've got to deal with uh, First Nations claims and, and other things this way. Now, 
uh, in a way, it almost seems impossible to do anything today if you wanted to build a road or you wanted to build a, a pipeline because of so many different groups involved. How do you ever get them all on board? So I understand the challenges here. I will say again, though, that this Line 3 is being rebuilt at this moment. It still is being rebuilt on the part that they've got the approvals. So Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, we're getting a lovely new replacement pipeline built. And in a way, it almost seems stupid that you would build a new pipeline to the border of Minnesota and then try to take the oil through an old pipeline. My feeling is that uh, that they'll also see the, the silliness and all that and that they'll approve it, but what they might do is approve it with so many strings attached that it just becomes too complicated for Enbridge to try to do. We're going to have to wait and see what that judge's report is. She seems like a, she has a history of being a very reasonable and balanced person, but we'll just have to see what comes out later today. It's interesting to watch the political dynamic here, and you're right, Marvin, you can't look at this without going through that prism. Uh, because, I mean, Stephen Harper just tried to, you know, push these things through and got nowhere. I mean, he, he didn't get approvals for any of these pipeline projects. Uh, along comes Justin Trudeau and says, okay, but I'm going to make sure we follow all the process. I'm going to dot all the I's, cross all the T's. And he was vilified by a lot of the, the proponents for this, saying, well, you, no, you, you're going to tangle this thing up in red tape. But he got two of them done that way. But it seems as if even with all those environmental concerns and doing this report and getting this okay, it's still not enough to get the thing moved forward. Now, here, here's the funny thing, Bill, and, and forgive me for mentioning his name. We haven't talked about him for a little while, but there's this nice gentleman in Washington named Donald Trump who, who positions himself as a friend of business. This is a person who, within days of taking office in early 2017, uh, approved the Keystone XL pipeline. So that building is going on even as we speak. I have not heard him weigh in on this issue in Minnesota. And if, for instance the judge's report is negative, or if, for instance, uh, the Minnesota state uh, government seems to be a bit negative towards it, remember it's a democratic government, it would be interesting to see if Donald Trump takes to Twitter uh, and decides to, to jump on board this. I don't know if it would help or hurt, but he normally is a pro-business kind of guy, and he's a pro-pipeline kind of guy. Could he, as the federal authority, overrule the state? In a way, he did that with Keystone XL. Now, mind you, in that situation, Nebraska and some of the other states where Keystone was going through had come to an agreement pretty much. He just pushed it over the edge. But would he contravene them? And if I'm Enbridge, I would not be surprised if I'm spending a few lobbying dollars in Washington, not just in Minnesota, but in Washington, D.C., to see if I can make my case at a federal level. But your point's well taken. I know that Trump loves to take credit for just about anything that, that goes on there. Uh, probably, you know, it, it, it's fault there that there was a sunny day today, but but there were some modifications made to Keystone, and that's what brought a lot of those states on side. They initially had opposed it, and they, they did modify the design and even the path it was going to take, and that seemed to assuage some of those concerns. Right, and then federally, they they started to get a little antsy again. So under Obama, it was a, a concern about all this. He actually wanted to leave it to the next president, who, by the way, he assumed was going to be Hillary at the time. He didn't want to have to be the one to kill it. He thought maybe that would be Hillary's first job. Instead, Trump came along. His only concern was not an environmental one, but who's going to actually build it? Are we going to have American jobs? Are we going to have American steel? And initially, he, he approved the XL pipeline, Keystone XL pipeline, subject to it using American steel. 
Then someone had to take them aside and said, well, sir, they've already bought all the pipes. They're stored over here. They're not buying new pipes. They are what they are. So then he put it a little caveat. He said, okay, no new steel should be anything but American. Well, they didn't need any new steel. And, and nonetheless, they got the pipeline being constructed. And, and Bill, one other quick note about these pipelines. Um, and, and again, I understand both sides of these arguments. But these are pipelines not going to be built in a day or a week or a month or even a year. These are built over several years. And you really have have to think about the world over the next 20 years. Now, ultimately, I believe in my heart of hearts that we will move away from oil as our primary energy source. There's such work going on, whether it's with solar or wind power or electric or hydro or, or whatever it happens to be. I think we are going to slowly wean ourselves away from petroleum, but it is slowly, it's not on a dime. And I think there is an argument for these pipelines, even if they are only involved for the next 30 years or so. By the time the end of this century, we may well be on to different energy sources, but to get us to that point, I think we still need that oil to flow in some way. If you don't build the pipeline, your choice is train cars, and they, they scare me to death. Well, and there's not just the energy aspect or whether, you know, you're putting it into the car or you're using it to heat homes. But, I mean, there's a large part that petroleum plays in, in industry that people may not even be aware of. An awful lot of products have, have uh, elements of that in them. I mean, th this is a, an economic uh, concern uh, far greater than just whether or not uh, it's going to impact the price of gasoline. Right. So, you know, a great example of this is, uh, of course, we get most of our plastics from petroleum. There are drugs we get from petroleum, other chemicals that we get from petroleum. And I think we'll still be using petroleum at the end of this century. But one of our biggest uses for it is energy. And I think we will shift away from that. But we'll still be using oil. We're still going to need oil in some form because of these other uses, whether it's to make clothing or whether it's to make the plastics or, or make uh, polymers and other high-tech uh, uh, materials of the future, there's still going to be a need for it. But it will be diminished. So at that time, maybe we can look at alternate ways of moving some oil around. But for the time being, pipelines are very efficient. They, generally speaking, have a pretty good track record. Yes, occasionally there is a spill. They have to move in and clean it up. But I haven't seen a town burned to the ground the way I have seen in Lac-Magatic because of a pipeline. Well, we'll see what happens with the Minnesota ruling, and that'll start the ball rolling, I guess, one way or another. Absolutely. Marvin, thanks as always. Great talking to you again. My pleasure, Bill. Marvin Ryder with the DeGroote School of Business, of course. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. One of the more controversial uh, programs that's being proposed uh, for the upcoming uh, provincial election on June 7th is daycare. Uh, it's It's been a contentious issue for a long, long time. Uh, so far, both the NDP and the Liberals have made daycare proposals. Uh, the Liberals actually did that in their budget presentation some time ago, and uh, the NDP rolled theirs out just a few days ago. Uh, we have yet to hear from the progressive conservatives on daycare at all. Well, that's only one of many issues I guess they haven't really touched on. But a spokesperson for the uh, PC campaign says that uh, they'll make an announcement about it in a while. So I guess we'll see what that's going to entail. But it does invite a, 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 a date, really, about the, you know comparing and contrasting the two proposals right now. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Lindsay McDonald, who is the coordinator for the Association of Early Childhood Educators in Ontario. Lindsay, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Be here, Bill. Thanks for the invite. Well, this is an interesting discussion and debate, and and before we get into the pros and cons of the two proposals so far, maybe the the, the overriding thing that we should be pleased about—I think most of us should be anyway—is that that what these proposals have done is is it's this has put this on the front burner, uh, which is 
uh, the first time in a long time that we've been able to do that in a provincial election. Absolutely. I think it's uh, it's absolutely great to see that uh, two key political parties have come out strong uh, on the childcare issue. So it's great. Have we turned the corner then? Does that mean this is now going to be part of the discussion and the debate? Because previously, you know, as, as well as I do, Lindsay, the, ask, the, the answer was always, well, it's a great idea, but we just can't afford it. Can't afford it. Right, right. I think that, uh, I don't think that argument pans out anymore, you know, because quite frankly, um, if parents can't afford childcare, and this is parents of any income bracket, um, childcare is a severe sticker shock uh, for, for families who, who need access to uh, quality licensed childcare and, and who, you know, can't, can't pay a second mortgage uh, in, in fees. And it's time that government uh, invests uh, appropriately in our childcare program so that it's affordable for everyone. So so let's talk about that. And, and as we said, two of the three parties have, have mentioned uh, that they'd move forward on this, and, and we'll see what we get from the PCs in the next little while. I, I could speculate about that, but we'll leave that for a little bit later on. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a tax credit. That's what the PCs yeah. always do. It's a ta- they, they don't give you money up front. They don't pay for programs. Okay. They say you can claim it once a year on your taxes. And, and by the way, been there, done that. I mean, the previous uh, conservative government in Ottawa tried to do that. And it worked out to about eight or nine bucks a day, which really doesn't help parents that are dealing with this. Well, if childcare costs you twenty dollars a day, then uh, that doesn't uh, even make a dent in it. And uh, it's interesting because the the conservative government under Harper spent over seven billion dollars um, giving parents a hundred dollars a month, and they didn't create a single childcare space. And th- and there's there's the, the the reason that this discussion has to happen is yeah. because you got to take this away from simply being a line item in a budget and deal with the reality here of what parents are dealing with. Is you could offer them a hundred bucks a day. That by the way, that's never going to happen for anybody who's listening <laughs> to the conversation. But it doesn't matter if you don't have space for the kids. Right. That's right. And it's got to be it's got to be licensed quality childcare that's uh, staffed by uh, qualified early childhood educators. You know, that's the key to uh, quality childcare. That's the key to quality education uh, for our young children. And, and I know that there are people that would always look and, and, you know, probably out of frustration and, and find whatever they could find. And they might find some nice lady who lives around the corner from them that'll look after right. their kids. But if they're not qualified people, then, you know, you have to wonder about the level of care. And I'm not suggesting there would be anything untoward, but, you know, propping the kids down in front of the TV and turning on Sesame Street is not really a, an effective way of doing child care. It, it, might, it might get, you know, you'd know that they were in a safe environment, but it's not really helping them. Uh, which is why your point is well taken about having people that are qualified to actually run these programs. That's right. And, and early childhood educators, you know, they play a really valuable role uh, in society and caring for and educating our young children. And uh, uh, they're specialized in, in the child development uh, for the early years, right? Uh, children are learning um, when they're, you know, one years old, when they're a couple months old. Uh, development is rapid. And uh, there's, you know, decades and decades of research that show uh, that uh, the zero to five years are, are the formative years for child development. And those years make a big difference. And early childhood educators uh, make lifelong impacts on, on children's development and learning, right? Well, I was always amazed at some of the critics that would simply say, you know, that when we talked about doing this in the past, uh, and folks such as yourself and your organization would be advocating for this, and they'd say, this is nothing more than glorified child care. And I said, what's wrong with that? 
Uh, I mean, this is a learning example and a learning situation and putting kids into an environment where, where they could actually start to flourish as a result of this. And I, I don't see the downside. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument that's the, that uh, this is glorified babysitting is a bygone era, quite frankly. Um, well, we'll, see, are, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, we hope, right? Uh, but um, I think it's important for people to remember um, that uh, Canada lags uh, far behind other well-developed uh, nations in terms of uh, providing high-quality early years and child care programs to children and families. And, uh, and I think that that, that you know, I, I'm proud of uh, our country, but I think we can do a lot better on child care. And we're looking at Ontario now as we come in into election. And, and I think this has to be a key, a key issue for voters, whether or not you have children. Let's, let's talk about the debate and the discussion itself, Lindsay, because you raised a very important aspect of this. In the past, when we've had this discussion, at whatever level, be it federal or provincial, a lot of it was just, okay, how much money are we going to give parents? In other words, it was, it was talking about subsidizing or trying to pay for this. Uh, there was very little, if any, discussion about staffing it and about providing spaces. Uh, and, and the fact that both of these uh, parties, both the NDP and Liberal, have covered that, uh, it's got to be reassuring for you to understand that that's now part of the discussion. It's very reassuring. Um, the Association of Early Childhood Educators uh, has been, we've been working side by side with early childhood educators across the province uh, to, to raise our voices as uh, professionals and as educators to say, look, um, if, if we, we know that parents uh, need more access to childcare, we have to grow the system. We know that parents are paying too much for childcare. They can't afford to pay more. But quite frankly, we can't expand the system without early childhood educators, right? Um, and, and we're very happy to see that both the Liberals and the NDP are well aware of that and have acknowledged that any childcare uh, platform, any childcare commitment from um, from a party has to include um, acknowledgement of early childhood educators as uh, qualified professionals and also has to address uh, their wages and working conditions right alongside affordability for parents. What about training? I, I know that there are currently uh, programs in existence right now that do train people for this line of worker. Uh, mm -hmm. If, in fact, we get a government uh, after June 7th, whatever political stripe they have, uh, that advocates for this and wants to implement something like this, uh, is th are there going to be enough people to fill some of the spots that hopefully are going to be created? You know, that's a, that's a really great, great question. Uh, there are currently 55,000 registered early childhood educators in the province. Um, and, and so, but we know that expanding the, the system is going to require more ECEs. Around, uh, if you look at the Liberals' plan, they're going to need about 25,000 more ECEs uh, by uh, 2020. So that's very soon. Um, and uh, the, the way to recruit early childhood educators to work in the sector is to acknowledge uh, that this is uh, professional work. These are educators. Um, who do really important work of uh, caring for our children, and we have to ensure that they're compensated appropriately for their training and qualifications. Also, I think uh, that the training programs, the diploma programs across the province uh, who are turning out uh, well-trained early childhood educators, they will need the opportunity uh, to ramp up, and I think they're probably, with these commitments, already looking at how they can do that. So I think it is possible 
Um, but any expansion, um, it will take time. It will take time to um, expand programs, to build new programs, and to recruit uh, the ECE professionals to work in them. There are, and again, I don't want to make this too elementary, but essentially there are not-for-profit daycares and there are for-profit daycares. Is there a That's different? Right. Is there a different approach, Lindsay? Well, yeah, I mean, um, so nonprofit child care programs, uh, uh, you know, the money uh, that parents pay go right in uh, back into the program. And uh, most of that money goes into staff wages uh, because that's usually the largest item uh, in any child care program's budget. And I guess the difference uh, for for profit is that uh, some of that money goes into uh, the pocket of a owner or uh, operator or corporation. Uh, and now I don't want to villainize for-profit childcare programs. I think uh, there are quality for-profit operators. Parents rely on for-profit programs around the province. ECs are working in for-profit programs across the province. But in terms of expanding our program, we really need to look at, uh, you know, what we want for our children, what's best for society overall. And I think government money uh, public funding, voter tax dollars uh, should be going in, in directly to our children. Yeah, and, and listen, that's a debate that we've had in other sectors with private versus public, and and right. and and I'm a free enterprise individual too. I, I advocate for that, and that's wonderful. But I think there are some things that we simply have to say: look, at, uh, the public good has to outweigh profit margins, and we have that's to right. do something about that. And daycare, that's and 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 how our kids are going to develop, and how they're going to be looked after and and educated, I think has to fall under that guise. I mean, you know, there are for-profit schools too, but I mean, more often than not, you know, you look at at the publicly funded systems. Uh, to try to find where you can get education for the mainstream and for the most people, and I think that's what we'd be doing here. But again, that's uh, that, everything. I guess is on the table now. Yeah, I think it, I think it's safe to say that uh, you know there we've got two um, very uh, comprehensive uh, plans from both the Liberal and the NDP government um, to address uh, affordability for parents and to address uh, decent work for early childhood educators and to also address expansion. Um, and I think that uh, it's important for voters uh, to cast a ballot uh, for uh, a party, for a, a candidate uh, that's got a plan for universal, affordable, high-quality child care. How big a, I'm going to use a, a political term here, uh, and I mean this with all respect, how much of a lobby is there to try to make this happen during the, right after this election? In other words, is there a big enough push uh, because I, I, this, as you mentioned, crosses all demographic lines, crosses all income levels. I mean, people that are making fairly decent money that still have young families still have to find daycare spaces. That's right. And it's one thing to say, hey, I can afford to pay it, but if there's no space, then they're, they're stuck. Uh, so, right. so this is something, this is something that, as you mentioned, absolutely has to happen. But is there enough of a push now that all three political parties, I mean, we're waiting on what the PCs may want to propose, but they're all going to jump in here and make sure that this is going to happen in some way, shape, or form? That's right. Um, there's, we're working, uh, the Association of Early Childhood Educators is working in partnership uh, with the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care um, to engage early childhood educators, parents, allies, community members who care about child care, uh, to uh, engage with voters, to engage with candidates, 
um, across the province in ridings all across the province uh, on the issue of child care uh, to ensure that uh, that voters are making uh, asking the right questions of uh, candidates when they come to your door. What are you doing to ensure that uh, every family has access to affordable, high quality child care? What are you going to do to ensure that you can uh, recruit and retain the best early childhood educators? Um, and there is a significant push. Uh, we're working uh, to launch our campaign uh, this Thursday in Toronto, in Etobicoke. Uh, and our campaign is saying, you know what, universal child care is possible. And voters need to vote for um, a party, for a candidate that's got a plan to make it possible. I do want to touch on the idea of, of, of tax rebates as opposed to providing services and, 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 and funding for this. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I'm rather tongue-in-cheek, you know, presupposing that that's what the PCs may uh, propose right. simply because that's what the federal uh, conservatives did some years ago. But, right. but, but I, the reason I'm, I'm suggesting that may be where they're going to go on this is because they've already tried to do that with the minimum wage increase and simply say, well, we'll give these people a, a tax rebate instead of actually right. giving them an increase. Uh, which was wrong-headed for a whole lot of reasons. First of all, an awful lot of the people that that are making minimum wage don't even pay taxes. They don't qualify for that threshold. But over and above that, even the people that do, uh, they don't want a refund once a year. They need money on a weekly basis to pay for this stuff. And there are certain income levels that are going to be in the same circumstance, I would think, Lindsay, with daycare. A rebate mm-hmm. uh, that comes to them in March after they get their tax refund is not going to help them pay for this stuff in February, March, April, May, or June. They need They need help every two weeks. Right. My, per, you know, my opinion uh, is that um, uh, tax rebates uh, would take us from from bad to worse um, because that's a funding the parent model. Uh, what we really need and what research has shown us is that we need government uh, to fund the program. That's the only way that you're going to be able to expand and to ensure um, affordability for parents while also ensuring uh, professional pay and decent work for early childhood educators. Well, it goes back to your original point, that if you don't create spaces, uh, then nobody wins. Uh, you know, you can, right. you can offer all the subsidies, all the rebates that you want, but if there aren't enough spaces, uh, then, you know, we're no further ahead. As a matter of fact, as you say, we're, we're probably going to be behind in this circumstance. So there's got to be a, a two-pronged approach, and I think that's where we always fell short of the past. The discussion was always about what we were going to give for the parents and not about growing the system. That's right. And, and parents will benefit more uh, from growing the, the system, um, and parents and generations of families to come will benefit more uh, from governments that, that look at investing directly into the child care system uh, to ensure affordability, to ensure access. Uh, you know, we, we need, uh, child care needs to be funded appropriately. Uh, it's a public good. It's a public service. Uh, and Ontario can't work without childcare, right? Uh, think about a day without childcare. Uh, it would be a catastrophe, right? Our nurses wouldn't be able to go to work. Our teachers wouldn't be able to go to work. Uh, so this is something that benefits all of us. And uh, a tax break, uh, I think uh, there's uh, some, uh, some risk that's actually associated with that. And we've seen in Quebec uh, offering tax breaks has really opened the market uh, to big box uh, corporate child care providers and more for-profit providers, uh, which research shows uh, does provide a, a lower quality of care and also uh, lower wages for educators. It seems as if there's a paradigm shift here in Ontario now towards this. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's due to um, organizations like the ACO, like the Ontario Coalition for Better Childcare, local organizations and programs, children, uh, parents, families, educators who are who are standing up and saying this is this is what we need in Ontario. Well, uh, it would be interesting to see what the uh, Progressive Conservatives propose. With the other two parties, of course, have got their proposals on the table. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see just how this becomes part of the discussion as we head towards June 7th. Uh, stay, stay strong with this, Lindsay. I know that you guys Thank are going to do a launcher campaign in a couple of days, as you mentioned, in Etobicoke. But uh, I'd like to see this uh, front and center as we move forward towards June 7th. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Take care. Big shout-out to all of my ECEs in Hamilton. You betcha. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks so much. Lindsay McDonald, coordinator for the Association of Early Childhood Educators. And uh, as we say, we were uh, awaiting uh, some sort of a word platform announcement about the uh, daycare or proposed daycare and whatever shape that form that may take from uh, the Progressive Conservative Party. They say that will be coming at some point, but I haven't said when or exactly what it's going to entail. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.